Heavenly Father, we thank you for not forsaking us. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now by the power of the Holy Spirit, so we obey your decrees and live pleasing lives to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Philippians, and we've been looking at how the Apostle Paul has turned from speaking about himself and his sufferings to speaking to the church in Philippi itself directly and giving them instructions as to how they are to live. And he's been instructing them as to the way that they are to live as unified people, that they're to contend as one man. And he continues to do so in chapter 2, verse 1. He wants the the church in Philippi, to make his joy complete by being unified. We see that in verse 2 of chapter 2, chapter 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, unified, having the same love, unified, being one in spirit and purpose, unified. He's continuing to encourage them to have the unity that they should as Christians. And he says that if they do so, they will make his joy complete. Now, how are they going to be more and more unified in the way that is described in verse 2 and even down to verse 3 and 4? I mean, verse 3 and 4, look at it, it says, Do not, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, if people do that, of course they will be unified. But that is a very difficult thing that he is asking there. Don't we recognise this, that even in the best of the leaders of the world, when we think of those who are at the highest points of government, they're meant to be the cream of the crop. They're meant to be the best people in society. They can all fly to Glasgow, and can they agree on something? Can they be like-minded? Can they experience unity with one another? We see reports that they cannot. And these are meant to be the people who are the best in the world, and yet they cannot be like-minded. And even as we may be ready to mock them, Think of your own self. Is it natural for you to think of others as better than yourself? And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying we're meant to do in verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Why is Paul asking what appears to be impossible? Well, he knows that we can actually think of others as better than ourselves. He knows that we can be like-minded with others if we know the love of God. If we know the love of God, then we can actually be united with others, even though it is unnatural in our sinful flesh to do so. Where do we get this from in the text? Well, look with me at verse 1. What does it say in verse 1? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Verse 1 there, I think, I believe, is speaking all about the love of God. All about the love of God. When it says there about being, having encouragement, it's through being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, I think it's talking about God's love there. If any fellowship with the Spirit, of course, it's talking about God. And tenderness and compassion, I think, are rolled into the love of God as well. Why would I say this? 
Well, some people even think that this is a reference to all members of the Trinity here uh, because it mentions Christ in the first part, uh, in comfort from his love. It doesn't mention the Father there and literally translated as comfort from love. Uh, but of course, the fellowship with the Spirit is mentioned there. But if we look at that famous benediction in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, what does it say? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so it seems like there's a, a very close parallel there with that famous benediction, starting with Christ and the unity that we have in him. The, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But even if some people suggest that when it says there that it's uh, a comfort from, his, from love, it's the Apostle Paul's love or other believers or even the believers of Philippi themselves, any comfort from their own love or any tenderness and compassion from themselves, we recognise that even that love, where does it come from? Where does the love of the Apostle Paul come from? Where does the love of the church in Philippi come from? Well, 1 John 4, 19 tells us, doesn't it? We love because he first loved us. All love has its origin. True love has its origin in God. Trying to get unity before knowing God's love is like putting the cart before the horse rather than the horse after the cart. Which is it? Does the love of God draw human love out of them? Or does human love draw God's love? Which is it? Does unity with Christians produce unity with Christ? By uniting with other Christians, does that produce unity with Christ? Or is it that we have unity with Christ and then that produces Christian unity? Well, Philippians tells us it starts with God. The love of God then produces the love of Christians. The unity with God, then produces unity with other Christians. But you may ask, how does receiving the love of God help us unite with other Christians? How does it help us to unite with other Christians when we're so easily divided from one another? How does the love of God help us unite with other Christians? Well, we read in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if we have union with Christ, then we have encouragement to do what God commands. Why? Why do we have courage? Well, because we have the power of God working within us as we have union with Christ. We have died, been buried, and raised with Christ Jesus, and that same power that has brought us to life in Christ Jesus is at work within us so that we can actually do what God commands, even though it may look impossible, which includes thinking of others as better than ourselves, uniting with other Christians. We're able to do it. Why? Because we have courage from union with Christ. Why else does God's love help us unite with Christians? Well, the second point there in verse two, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, if any comfort from his love, if we have the love of God, we have comfort. And with that comfort, what are we able to do? We're then able to comfort others. As we see other Christians around us, we're able to comfort them and encourage them. Just as we've experienced comfort in our sin and misery, we're then able to give comfort to others in their sin and misery. We're able to help them. Even though we may feel drained, because of the love of God that continues to comfort us, we're then able to give of ourselves to others and encourage and comfort them. Why else 
Does the love of God help us unite with other Christians? Well, what's the third point there in verse 1? It says, if any fellowship with the Spirit... If we have fellowship with the Spirit, what does that mean? We have partnership with the Holy Spirit. We're in business, so to speak, with him. And as we enjoy that partnership with the Holy Spirit, we crave more and more of fellowship with him. And where do we find fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Well, we find it in other believers, as they have the Holy Spirit living in them. As we unite with them... We experience increasing fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're doing even now as we come together this morning. We're experiencing fellowship with the Holy Spirit as we spend time with other believers. And so, of course, we unite with them. It's part of the reason you're united this morning, sitting here and listening to the Word of God. It's because you're craving fellowship with the Holy Spirit. How else does the love of God help us unite with other Christians? Well, what's the fourth point there? Two rolled together in one, if any, tenderness and compassion. If we know the tenderness and compassion of God, then of course we'll be tender and compassionate with others. No matter how much they may hurt us, no matter how much their suffering may be going on in their lives and how we feel bewildered as to how we can help them and unite with them in such pain, because we know the tenderness and compassion of God, we can then reach out with tenderness and compassion. But you may say, but does God really show such love? Does he really show such encouragement, such comfort, such fellowship, partnership with us? Does he really show such tenderness and compassion? Yes. That text that we had read for us before from Isaiah 42, that famous text, verse 3, says, A bruised reed he will not break. And a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. We can glide over those words without getting in the full comprehension of them. A bruised reed. You may feel like a bruised reed at times, but he will not break you so that you're clean in two. And a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. You may feel like you're just, you're not on fire, you're just smouldering. But God will not snuff you out. He is tender and compassionate. And there's a wonderful example, there are many wonderful examples in the Bible as to how the Lord is tender and compassionate, how he's encouraging and comforting uh, to people. And I just wanted to bring one to your attention today that really struck me in a book that I was reading. And I'm going to read a little bit from the book as well. But firstly, we'll read of the account in the scriptures. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, which is found on page 995. We'll be reading from verse 25. So this is an account of the Lord Jesus as he's moving around the land of Israel and interacting with different people. And we're going to read of his interaction with one woman. Page 995, if you have a church Bible. Mark chapter 5. And we'll read this account in verse 25 and following of the Lord's tenderness and his compassion. Verse 25, Mark chapter 5. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realised that power had gone out from him. 
he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, I just wanted to read a little bit uh, from this book, which I just read recently. It's a recent publication called A Brief Theology of Periods by Rachel Jones. And it's a, a, a book on the subject of menstruation from a biblical perspective, which when you actually consider it, most uh, there's many, many texts in the scriptures that speak about the subject. And, I, and she picks up on this example of God's love, of Jesus's love here in Mark chapter five, and has some wonderful comments to make and really draws out what it means that he, uh, his interactions with this woman. So I'm gonna read from her and what she says here in this. She says, here is a woman suffering from the kind of abnormal, lengthy gynecological bleeding described in Leviticus 15 verses 25 to 30. We don't know what her exact condition is, but we can imagine that like many gynecological issues, it is painful and exhausting. She has suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, we are told. Perhaps the search for a cure was worse than the original cause. But worse than the pain is the shame. Because of course the Old Testament laws have quite a lot to say about this subject and the uncleanness that is associated with it. And so she goes on to say, this woman has been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. What were you doing 12 years ago? What were you doing 12 years ago? It's a good question to ask. That's how long she has been suffering. Under the laws of Leviticus, that means 12 years without sharing a bed with her husband, if she had one, 12 years without enjoying the embrace of another, 12 years without coming to the temple to worship. She was banned from the temple because of her uncleanness. 12 years of exclusion and shame. And now there's no hope of a cure. Her money is all spent, but the bleeding doesn't stop. She never wakes up better, and often she wakes up worse. Those stubborn red stains just keep on appearing, morning after morning, day after day. Then she hears of a miracle worker called Jesus, who has been healing great crowds of people with otherwise incurable illnesses, and she feels a glimmer of hope. Could he, would he do that for her? Surely no self-respecting Jewish man will want anything to do with her, but she's desperate. It's been 12 long years. So she decides to chance the crowds to reach him, hoping that no one recognizes her as an unclean woman who should be avoiding busy places. In the blink of an eye, the pain goes as she touches him and the bleeding stops. Imagine the relief as your heart soars in a moment of realization that you're healed, but that euphoria quickly gives way to gut-clenching gut fear. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Picture her, heart in her mouth, head bowed, desperate not to meet this man's eye in case he can tell from her face that it's she who has touched him, and it's she who has made him unclean. 
What will he say if he finds out? Will he turn on her in anger or turn away in disgust? She can't bear the thought of being exposed in front of all these people. But Jesus won't stop looking for the culprit. It's only a matter of time before she's found out. So she steps forward, falls on her knees and opens her mouth. And we read, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. It's verse 33. Perhaps there's a pause, a moment of stunned silence from the crowd. All eyes are on Jesus. And what do we read? He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The woman opens her eyes. She can see the dust in front of her face just fine, but are her ears deceiving her? There is no hint of anger or disgust in his voice, and his words are ones of love and acceptance. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. When we come to Jesus, these are his words to us too. Daughter, or son, no longer are we held at a distance, kept outside the camp. We're brought into the embrace of God, loved unconditionally and cherished as the apple of his eye. How is that possible for someone so unclean? Because your faith has healed you. When we come to Jesus, believing that he can heal our sin and reaching out to him by faith, that's what he does. He makes us clean by the power of his cross, where he took our spiritual uncleanness upon himself. And he's so great a saviour that just a fingertip of faith is enough for our sin to be wiped away and for us to be given all that Jesus offers. We read, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus gives us peace and freedom. He brings peace between us and God instead of conflict. And he restores peace within us. We're freed from all that we need to be ashamed of. Our sins have been forgiven and our status in Christ is secure. We don't need to feel crushed by other people's expectations or live in fear of their judgment that we are unclean. We don't need to be ruled by our own internal monologue of self-loathing that we are unclean. Jesus has seen the worst of us and has loved us enough to die for us anyway. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That's the last we read of this bleeding woman in Mark's gospel. How we'd love to know what happened next. We'd love to witness the scenes where she goes back home or starts to rebuild her life after her encounter with Jesus. I must say that. She's going to be one of those people that I'd like to look up in heaven when we get there. I also like to look up the blind man in John chapter 9. I really like that guy. Um, but we don't know his name. We don't know the name of this woman. We'd like to know more. But Rachel Jones continues in her book. But in another sense, we get to do one better than read about it. As women, let's say men also, who have been set free by Jesus, we get to live the rest of her story ourselves. Isn't this a beautiful example? You ask, does God love us? Isn't this a beautiful example of God's love, of God's encouragement, of God's comfort, of God's fellowship, of God's tenderness and compassion? As Christians, haven't we experienced, as I've said already, haven't we experienced something similar of God's love shown to this woman by the Lord Jesus? Haven't we been aware of our sinful uncleanness, our shame, and that we deserve isolation, not just for our lifetime here, but for all of eternity? 
Haven't we reached out as Christians and touched Christ and known in our heart as we touched him by faith that we were clean? Haven't we then acknowledged that Jesus has healed us even with trembling before him? And haven't we heard Christ's tender and compassionate voice say, your faith has healed you, go in peace and be freed from your suffering? And so then, as we understand God's love and his compassion and his fellowship and his tenderness and his love for us, doesn't that then compel us to unite with other Christians in loving unity? Isn't that why the Apostle Paul says at the front of his command there in Philippians chapter 2, he says what God has done for the church in Philippi, before he tells them what they should do. If you have any, any at all, just a fingertip of encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Doesn't the love of God compel us to unite with other Christians in loving unity, when we truly understand what God has done for us and how loving he has been to us, how can we not love those around us? Doesn't the encouragement of union with Christ compel us to unite with other Christians? Doesn't the comfort from God's love compel us to unite with other Christians? Doesn't fellowship with the Holy Spirit compel us, draw us, like a, heart, a horse drawing a cart, compel us to unite with other Christians? Doesn't the tenderness and compassion of God compel us, draw us to unite with other Christians? We can do it. We can do the impossible if we know the love of God. But if you can't love others, if you can't unite with other Christians... If you're always disagreeing with other Christians and breaking fellowship with them, what does that then mean? What does it mean? You don't know God's love. You don't know God's love. If you're always divisive, what does it mean? It means that you don't have any encouragement from being united with Christ. You don't have any comfort from his love. You don't have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You don't have any tenderness and compassion from God. Otherwise, you would. Be loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And what does that then mean if you don't know God's love? Well, you're still in your uncleanness. You're still in your sin and shame. And you will be eternally excluded from God and from his people for all of eternity in hell. That's what it means. If you're continuously divisive, you're out of God's love, which means you're going to be cast out of his presence for all eternity may it not be if you see in yourself a divisive spirit come to christ now come to him ask him to show you his love touch him reach out and touch him by faith and be clean and begin to know the joy that comes of being clean and knowing god's love that's what the Apostle Paul says has happened to the church and happened to himself. In verse 2 he says, Then make my joy complete 
Make his joy complete by being like-minded. How did he begin to have joy? Of course, it's by his own knowledge of God's love for him. But then he gets to see the love of others for God, or the love of God for others. And then he wants to have his joy completed by seeing the church in Philippi loving one another. They've experienced God's love. He's experienced God's love. And he wants them to experience even more love of God as they unite with one another so that his joy is even greater. And that's the case for us today as well. If you come to Christ and reach out and touch him by faith, you will begin to experience great joy, exceeding joy, because you know that you are clean, that your sins are forgiven and you have an eternal inheritance. But that joy just begins. That's what he's saying there. Make my joy complete. How is our joy completed? Well, it's by seeing other Christians experience that joy, by seeing people saved, and then seeing them like-minded, seeing them having the same love, seeing them being one in spirit and purpose. That fills us with joy. And I've seen it over the years that I've been here. I've enjoyed a unity with the people here. It's a joy to see people united, standing with the same spirit and, and loving one another with the same love. And that can be yours too if you come to Christ. And then the joy will continue for all of eternity as we're united in heaven and we continue to sing God's praises and sing of his love for all of eternity. So let us all learn more of God's love, his encouragement, his comfort, his fellowship with us, his tenderness and his compassion. How? Well, study him. Study him in the pages of scripture. Study his love for us. And one of the best places to study it is, of course, in the Gospels, where we see the Lord himself incarnate, interacting with sinful humanity. And then his crucifixion, the death of Christ, is the high point of the love of God for us as he took the penalty that we deserve. And even Paul can't help himself. He's going to soon, in chapter 2, speak of the love of God shown in the death of the Lord Jesus, his incarnation, and then his death on a tree. And as we study the love of God, then, of course, our love for others will grow and increase. A good pastor doesn't simply bark orders at the sheep under his care. What's a good pastor do? Well, he reminds you of God's love. So you can't help yourself but love one another. And we should do that all for our own selves as well. We should pastor our souls in the same way. Pastor our souls with these words from Philippians chapter 2. Start with the love of God, the comfort of his love, the encouragement we get from unity with Christ, the fellowship that we have with the Holy Spirit, the tenderness and compassion of God. If we start with that, if we pastor our souls by reminding ourselves of God's love, the commands to love one another just fall into place. They're just drawn along like a cart before a horse. God's love compels us. God's love draws us to love one another. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God of love. You're a God of justice, but you're also a God of mercy and grace and love. We thank you for the encouragement that we have found in being united with Christ Jesus. 
We thank you for the comfort of your love. We thank you for the fellowship we have with the Spirit. We thank you for your tenderness and compassion. But Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for not being loving towards one another, for so easily forgetting your love for us and so then easily forgetting to love one another. Help us, O God. Help us by the power of your Spirit to remember your love to us so that we are like-minded, so that we have the same love, that we are one in spirit and purpose because we know your love for us and love to rejoice in it and love to rejoice in the love that you are cultivating in our hearts for each other. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.